Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. You were supposed to turn left there. That was not the turn. I should be sorry to doubt the word of such a wise and inspired man, but the meaning of your statement, though probably clear to you, is the reverse of clear to me, for you certainly do not mean that I ought to doubt the directions provided for us by the hosts of this barbecue. Directions are a numerous class and will be found to present great differences, but even admitting that, like the question of whose turn it is to walk the dog, they are opposite as well as different. Should I be worthy of the name of driver or man if in order to avoid this difficulty I were to say, as you are saying of email directions, that there is no difference between one set of instructions and another? You have consulted both a paper map and Siri, raising the question as to whether unities of direction have a real existence, and then how each individual unity being always the same and retaining a permanent individuality can be conceived as dispersed and multiplied. Or we could just stop and ask somebody. The barbecue to which we are invited must necessarily happen in a place, and that place cannot be entire and yet divided from itself, which the latter would seem to be the greatest impossibility of all, for how can one and the same thing be at the same time in one and in many things? Mom, Dad, I hate it when you guys argue. When any universal assertion is made about hate, we must question its source. Her hating arises from within the body, but it is not of the body, so paradoxically it must come from without. Ugh, I'm getting out of the car. I suppose you're going to say that was my fault. It was your fault. Jerk. Harpy! See, even Greek philosophers can have regular arguments, which is the topic of today's show. Unless that topic is merely a shadow on a cave wall, and the real topic is over on the food schmooze. Speaking of which, he still uses Plato's recipe for stuffed grape leaves, Colin McEnroe. Right. Today's show is not about Greek philosophy or Greek philosophers who have been invited to barbecues but do not understand the directions. Uh, It's not about any of those things. It's about arguing. Uh, It's about something that we all do. Uh, It's about something that uh, has been something uh, of um, what? A a foundation on which a lot of Western civilization anyway is built. But there might be some question as to whether we do it the way we're supposed to do it or the way that it's the most beneficial for us to do it, particularly in this heated day and age. So on the show today, uh, you're first going to be meeting uh, Jay Heinrichs, uh, public speaker, business and marketing consultant, and the author uh, of the New York Times bestselling Thank You for Arguing, What Aristotle, Lincoln, and Homer Simpson Can Teach Us About the Art of Persuasion. Later, we'll also be joined by Deborah Tannen, professor of linguistics at Georgetown, and the author of several books, including The Argument Culture, Stopping America's War of Words, and her latest, You're the Only One I Can Tell. Uh, Jay Heinrichs, welcome to our show. Thanks, Colin. And before we dive in, I should say, it won't necessarily be obvious or relevant to most of you, but this is one of the shows that we are doing in the format that we call Radio for the Deaf, which means that we have interpreters here. Uh, Mary Sue and Sarah are here, uh, both dressed in plum and black, I might add. Uh, And uh, they will be interpreting uh, this entire show in American Sign Language. That feed of interpretation will be available on Facebook 
on the Colin McEnroe Show page. So go to the Colin McEnroe Show page if you are interested. In, and, I, you know, if there's anybody you know who would be part of uh, America's uh, Duff potential audience for basically the only show that regularly broadcasts in American Sign Language, please contact them immediately, no matter where they live, and tell them about this. And it'll stay up there anyway. You can watch it live right now, but it'll stay up there. Um, so, Jay... Um, let's begin with, with that whole idea that, you know, for centuries of Western civilization, I would assume anyway, the notion that argument is a healthy thing, a good thing, maybe even a way to acquire truth seemed to be a pretty accepted premise, right? I mean, to what degree are we built on a foundation that includes useful argument? Well, like good Greek philosophers, why don't we define argument in the first good place? Idea, yeah. So if you're looking to argument to define the truth, to, to seek out the truth, you're talking about a particular kind of argument called dialectic. And that was something that was well described by Aristotle back in the day. But Aristotle, the guy who invented logic and dialectic as we know it, um, actually came up with a different kind of argument. It's a kind that I like to talk about the most because it's what Western civilization, particularly democracy, has been based on. And that is rhetorical argument or deliberative argument. And that's an argument to make a choice. And when you think about this, this is not about that, um, that driving argument that we just heard, which is a highly philosophical argument. The problem with you know, deliberative argument is it has to do with the future. And there are no facts in the future. And much of the future doesn't look very logical in the first place. So other tools have to come to bear. So – so to a certain degree, I mean, we, let's talk about American democracy for a moment. I mean, it uh, it benefits or at least um, uh, acquires a certain amount of its its patina from this notion of rhetorical argument. I mean, it, it's certainly a big part of our legal system, the notion that there will be advocacy, that there will be arguments made on, on each side, whether it's a civil or a criminal, criminal case. But it's also, you know, very much part of maybe even the debates and quote unquote arguments that led to the Declaration of Independence, the creation of the Constitution, and then a lot of what went on in government uh, after that. In fact, it's John Quincy Adams who kind of got you started down this road, right? That's right. I'm a total John Quincy Adams nerd. Yeah, so th th here's the thing. When you talk about uh, courtroom rhetoric, that's called forensic rhetoric. It takes part mostly in the past tense. It's about things that happen. It tends to be about crime and punishment. Aristotle defined that very well, but he also – his favorite kind of argument was political argument and that is the argument of debates. And it's what every one of the founders had as a basis for their education. Even Benjamin Franklin, when he got past grammar school, learned the principles of rhetoric, which have largely been forgotten in education today. And that has to do with the future tense of making choices together and using the tools that help you make those choices. That's what the founders used in writing the Declaration and, by the way, the Constitution as well. Um, I would also – I would just not argue with you, of course, but say that some of what goes on in courtrooms is, be, uh, rises above forensic argument, including your friend John Quincy Adams in his uh, argument about the Amistad case. You know, it starts out as a forensic argument, but it's much more than that. It's effectively a rhetorical argument about what the nature of justice is, about what the nature of America is, right? Absolutely. What he did was use a prin the principles of framing. He was one of the most brilliant political framers in history, which is a way of defining an issue and broadening it to such a degree that it's not about the case at hand but something much more noble. So there's – I think also part of the tradition of arguing and maybe part of one of the parts that we've lost 
you may disagree, you know, but you may wish to argue. Uh, but is that notion of respect? And I, I don't want to over romanticize the past. Obviously, there were heated arguments, uh, you know, in Congress. I mean, there were canings uh, in Congress. But you know, I mean, you think of, for example, the Haynes-Webster debate. Daniel Webster, probably the most famous orator, arguer, debater uh, in American history. You know, famously at the end of uh, his his speech. He sat down. A southern senator leaned over and said, you might as well die now because, you know, because you've made the greatest speech of all time. And Haynes, his adversary, said, you shouldn't die. You should never die. A man who can make a speech like that should never die. And I feel like that, you know, the notion that your adversary has something to offer the world is intrinsic to rhetorical argument being useful. And I feel like it's the thing we're getting – we're losing track of. Yeah, you know, you have to keep in mind, though, um, the adversaries of Webster fought very hard against him politically. But there was no one better than Webster. He could command crowds of 50,000 people without amplification. And if you read his speeches today, they read like novels. I mean, there has never been anybody as good as that guy. So that praise was probably genuine for his talent not so much for the politics he stood for. And, you know, you look at the politicians today, they aren't as well educated or trained in that art as Webster was. Now, keep in mind that, you know, the the, the tenor of the time was very different. People appreciated the more flowery language than what we like to practice today. So it's hard to sound conversational and still sound like Daniel Webster. So you, one of the things you do is you teach people how to argue. You teach people how, how to persuade. And most of us are not going to speak before the Supreme Court. We're not going to speak in Congress. We're going to have arguments that are much more quotidian in, in nature. Um, so I don't know. I mean, like I think one example you give is let's say that uh, I get uh, pulled over by a, a cop for a speeding, and he wants me to give a t- wants to give me a ticket. And there is a kind of moment sometimes where there can be a little back and forth in that situation. Uh, it's certainly not a Daniel Webster speech. But so describe how you think that persuasive argument might or should go. Yeah, the first thing to think about is what's your real goal here? I mean, you may have an audience in the car who would be highly entertained by your insult to the cop. (laughs) But on the other hand, you know, what you may want to do is, first of all, not be hurt by this incident. And secondly, you know, get what you can out of it, possibly escape a speeding ticket, say. And, you know, so first, what is your goal? Well, your first goal should be to establish some sort of comfortable relationship with the cop. So what is – you have to put yourself in the mind of the cop. What is What does this policeman want or policewoman? You know, what is the goal that they're seeking? And this is where Aristotle can come back in because he talks about what's to the advantage of the audience. If you can speak to their advantage and not just your own, you're more likely to get what you want out of an argument. At the very least, even if you don't get out of a ticket, you end up driving away safely and that maybe should be your first goal anyway. Well, uh, let's stay with Aristotle for a second. So he talks about ethos, logos, and pathos. Um, So that's sort of the ethics justice argument, the logic argument, uh, and and the appeal to emotion. Um, So as you're talking to the policeman, you probably are going to have to select one of those. Um, I I have a a person who I will not name, uh, who has been pulled over for speeding more than once, has said, will say to the policeman something like, I have grandchildren and my daughter will never let me have my grandkids in the car again if I get a speeding ticket, Um, which can kind of work. So that's pathos, right? Is is that the best thing to try with a cop or does it vary? Well, when you talk about ethos, pathos, and logos, 
really they come down to the same thing when it comes to rhetoric. So logos is really not the kind of logic we get taught in school when it comes to rhetoric. Logos and rhetoric has to do with the beliefs and expectations of your audience. You have to think, okay, what does that cop believe and expect of somebody like me? Well, it depends in large part on your age, your gender, the color of your skin, what kind of car you're driving, and what obscene thing your license plate might say for that matter. Okay, so it's really not about you. Rhetoric is about the audience. Yes, that guy appeals to pity in talking about his grandchildren. That's great. That is an emotional appeal. But, you know, the most powerful of all, according to Aristotle, is actually appeal to character, which is basically to say, first of all, you can speak to the cop's identity to say, well, you're the expert in this. If you say I'm speeding, I must have been speeding. But I can tell you it's been very hard for me to monitor my speedometer quite quite as well, closely as you'd like me to. Um, I was simply following the car ahead of me. What would you have me do? What do you think I should do? And that's appealing to the policeman's expertise. And that's an appeal by character. It's appealing to the cop's identity. You could also say, well, you know, I am a medical doctor, if in fact you are a medical doctor, and um, I'm a little late to getting to surgery. You know, this, and I shouldn't have speeded. You're absolutely right. Please give me a ticket so I can heal this person as quickly as possible. That's an appeal by character. So those are the three, logic, emotion, and character. But they don't sound like anything you're usually taught in school, do they? No. And But I think another part of this is understanding the situation you're in. So Daniel Webster, arguing before Congress, really wants to seem confident and in control. Um, that's the way that he's going to persuade. If there's anybody there who's amenable to persuasion, that's how he's going to persuade them. In this situation, you don't have that kind of power. And pretending you do would be a big mistake, right? You have to understand the situa situation you're in. You can't assert your authority over a policeman. Yeah. The rhetoricians call that the art of opportunity. The ancient Romans believed so much in opportunity, which is not just seizing the occasion, the moment, but also exploiting it as well as possible. And that has to do with your audience, the circumstances, what the surroundings are, what the mood in the room or the car uh, happened to be. The, the Romans thought so much of that art that they actually had a god called Ocasio, the, the god of occasion. It's something we need to pay more attention to today. Um, I actually, I've, I don't know how well this fits any paradigm of argument. I've found that humor is often useful. I actually had a situation where I was stopped by a policeman and they ask you sometimes where you're headed. And I said, and it, this was true, I said, believe it or not, I'm going to the dentist and I'm late for my appointment. And if you think about it, speeding to get to the dentist is a pretty weird thing to do. Uh, and he, yeah, he started laughing and I think that may have knocked it down to a warning. Um, so uh, do, you, do you think argument is used well and successfully in 2017? I mean, do you see that happening anywhere around you? Absolutely. I mean, I, I work with advertising and marketing agencies, and they're brilliant at it. I work with social media companies, and they're very, very good at it. I mean, most of the persuasion, which we can call argument because it has to do with opposing sides, um, it happens invisibly. It doesn't happen in day-to-day -day conversation so much. I mean, when it comes to the actual spoken argument that you're talking about, mm. yeah, we're terrible at it. But the manipulation goes on and it's brilliant. 
So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the first kind, though, has gotten kind of a bad name, right? Uh, if I, in fact, if I say this happened the other day, I said, you know, uh, we've got six panelists coming on to talk about this movie. I think we're going to have some good arguments. Uh, people rebel against that, that. That that seems to them like a pejorative statement that we're going to have good arguments. Some other arguments really got a bad name. Uh, I don't know if you have any idea why that would be. Well, I mean, you know, a pejorative term is to call someone a sophist, you know, someone who exploits logic for manipulative purposes. That came from the earliest teachers of rhetoric. So, you know, manipulative argument has always had a deservedly shaky reputation because it has to do with manipulation. But we, we have to distinguish between an argument as I teach it and a fight which may be verbal. The difference is that in a fight, you try to dominate the other person or win on points or, or overwhelm the person potentially with physical threats or even violence. That's different from an argument where you want to win over a person. I mean, ideally, you want both sides, including your opponent, to think that they won. And that's how you get more than a compromise. You get a consensus. Um, I, I'm thinking that somebody who has devoted as much thought to this, and this isn't really your first book on this topic, uh, would be a formidable person to have in one's life. Uh, you presumably have a spouse, a family, uh, friends. Um, how, how does this skill and the, the amount of thought you put into this affect your own interactions with the people around you? Oh, I hate that question. Good. <laughs> because um, – I actually probably lose more than I win mm. with my wife who picked up these tools as, over the years as I've been learning them. I'll tell you the big difference in our marriage. I have two grown children who both argue very, very differently but are both equally persuasive in their own way. With my wife, you know, it used to be that being a husband and having a, you know, a Y chromosome, I guess, I would do something boneheaded and thoughtless. And, you know, she would not only point that out to me when she got very upset, but she'd also list all the atrocities I'd committed in the previous several months that she hadn't mentioned. And up until then, we'd prided ourselves on not arguing. We, th arguing. we thought we were an amicable couple who, who got along perfectly. I didn't know that she was just shutting up and storing things up. And so they would explode. It would almost be geological. <laughs> Since we learned rhetoric together over the years, now she gives me what for whenever I commit anything and she's upset about it. Or if she wants to make a choice, she uses the tools that you know we both learned together. When I use tools on her, she actually names them, which is kind of annoying but mm -hmm. fun at the same time. It becomes more of a game. And we've learned not to attack each other or use our own mistakes or insults as proof of what jerk the other person is, but rather as a way to make choices. Your son made a great argument about toothpaste. Uh, tell us that story. He did. Well, he was 15 years old and I was alone in the bathroom and discovered that the toothpaste tube had been squeezed dry. And being the father of a teenage son, I knew who the likely culprit was. So I yelled through this closed door, George, he used up all the toothpaste. And I hear this sarcastic voice on the other end saying, that's not the point, is it, dad? The point is, how are we going to keep this from happening again? <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because I, for years I had said the greatest way to get yourself out of trouble is to quickly switch the tense to the future where you solve the problems for all, you know, eternity rather than talk about your crime and punishment. 
I was actually so excited that um, he'd been listening to me that I let him win. And I said, okay, George, you win this argument. Now, will you please get me some toothpaste? Now, that's goal setting. I just wanted toothpaste. And, you know, he said, sure, dad, ran down to our freezing basement and got me a tube. And to this day, he still thinks he won that argument. But think about it. I got a teenager to run an errand for me happily. See, a sophist would have said, we all used up the toothpaste. I just squeezed out the last little smidgen of it. Um, but that, <laughs> that would have been a sophist. Um, all right. So we should take a break here so we can uh, – I want to expand this conversation a little bit, talk uh, more about what's happened to the whole notion of argument in everyday life and in our, uh, our public life. So we'll do that. I'd like to have an argument, please. So, have you been here before? No, this is my first time. I see. Try Mr. Barnard, room 12. Thank you. What do you want? <laughs> well, I was told outside. Don't give me that, you snotty face heap of parrot dropping. What? You vacuous, toffee-nosed, malodorous pervert. What? I came in here for an argument. Oh, 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 I'm sorry, this is abuse. Yes. Oh, no, you want 12A next door. I see. Yeah. Sorry. Is this the right room for an argument? I've told you once. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. When? Just now. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Didn't. I did. didn't. I'm telling you I did. You did not. I did. No, this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It is not. An argument is a connected series of statements to establish a definite proposition. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It isn't just contradiction. Argument's an intellectual process. Contradiction is just the automatic gainsaying of anything the other person says. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Not at all. No, look. I... Thank you. So uh, that's a little bit of uh, Monty Python's famous argument clinic uh, sketch. Uh, we're talking about arguing today. And in fact, uh, Jay Heinrichs, a public speaker and business marketing consultant and the author of Thank You for Arguing, What Aristotle, Lincoln, and Homer Simpson Can Teach Us About the Art of Persuasion is with us right now. In a few minutes, we will add to the conversation Deborah Tannen, uh, author of many books, including The Argument Culture, Stopping America's War of Words, and her latest, You're the Only One I Can Tell. So um, some of the, uh, first of all, I, I know from your book that you're quite familiar with the delights of Monty Python. Jay, um, some of that sketch, I think, also plays off a Brit British tradition of argument, right? That that probably more so than we. For example, if you go online, you can find this fabulous clip of William F. Buckley and James Baldwin arguing in front or debating, arguing in front of a British live audience. And, and there's a sense that uh, that a tradition is being nodded towards, right? That there's just an obvious value in this. One that I'm not really quite sure we have in the same measure. No, I think Americans are much shyer about that kind of confrontational debate. I mean, if you look at um, ministers' question period in parliament, where members of parliament get to ask questions, that's often hilarious and hugely entertaining. I think in America, everybody would be very quiet, and then at the end, they'd start shooting. <laughs> oh, ideally not. But, um, but I take your point. So, you know, we do 
a lot, really, want to persuade by means of argument, persuade other people by means of argument. There are questions here in America that seek some kind of resolution. I mean, an example would be climate change, right? I mean, there are an awful lot of people who are very, I'm one of them, who are very worried about climate change, who accept the science of it. It seems as though arguments, persuasive arguments, don't really happen, right? That almost immediately, if you're arguing with somebody who doesn't accept the validity of climate change, that person just rejects the science uh, and re rejects the sources of the science and the argument's kind of over. How, could, how can that be any different? Well, we, we're in a different realm now of rhetoric, uh, and this is ethos, which has to do with not just your projected character, your image, but also identity. And w one problem with climate change is before Al Gore became the spokesman from the left um, to inform everybody of the problem, a majority of Republicans believed in climate change and believed that humans caused it. What Gore did, um, through no fault of his own, by the way, was to drive people into um, belief as a form of identity. And once belief becomes part of your identity, I'm a good patriotic American, therefore I can't believe in this or I must believe in this you're really not going to be able to settle anything from a conversation. I mean, the same thing happened, by the way, before the Civil War, where um, you know the abolition movement, some historians say, really had a healthy start in the South. It wasn't until us obnoxious New Englanders got hold of the issue that it became impossible to be an abolitionist as a Southerner. That's where identity freezes people into place. Yeah, I'm not sure I entirely agree with that Al Gore thing. I mean, Al Gore was the first person introducing the notion of climate change into public debate in 1981 when people had no idea what he was talking about. And, I mean, he was always the, the person trying to, to, to bring that conversation to the fore. I mean, assume what you're talking about is post-2000. He, uh, he does the, the famous documentary and, and maybe that's – you know, puts it in. Uh, there, there certainly were people at that time who said, "Well, he's probably planning to run for president again. That's why he's doing this." But, but he was always, you know, I mean, he really was the thought leader about climate change starting around 1981. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the big difference is that after 2000, he just termed it a moral issue. And the problem is that anyone who is skeptical was on the wrong side. And that's where the argument turned from deliberative of what choices we can make together to what rhetoricians call demonstrative argument, which has to do with what's right and wrong and more importantly, who's in and who's out of the, the good tribe. So let's uh, add to this conversation uh, the aforementioned uh, Deborah Tannen, a professor of linguistics at Georgetown University, the author of many books, including The Argument Culture, Stopping America's War of Words, and the latest You're the Only One I Can Tell. Well, Deborah Tannen, the title even of one of those two books, tips your hand a little bit in terms of how you uh, feel about this. You feel ultimately that uh, you believe that, that our argument culture has just gone too far. Make that case. Yes, uh, the point that I make is about a concept that I refer to as agonism, where agon is the Greek word for war. I'm really not talking about literal arguments, but that we use argument or opposition, ritual fighting to approach just about everything. Uh, and now that book was published in 1998. And way back then, I pointed out that, and that's before the year 2000 that Jay just referred to, um, that climate deniers had, were having more success in the United States than in other countries, partly because of the obsession with everything having two sides. And journalists often, or mostly, uh, felt obligated to always 
quote, uh, climate change deniers if they were going to quote anything about climate change. And it's what's now referred to as false equivalence. That term wasn't around at that time, but um, the uh, it had to be a fight between two warring camps. And so if we believed in this, there had to be another side that believed the other. And um, it, it was almost like you the same few climate deniers were constantly being quoted, and it would give the impression that it was as um, taken as seriously in the scientific world as uh, the climate change, those who believed in it. Uh, I make the point, too, that Holocaust deniers had more success in the United States than any other country because they were able to masquerade as the other side in a debate. So I don't, in that book, I don't argue against arguing, you might say, and people have pointed out that that book is an extended argument saying that we were taking the adversarial format uh, to an extreme and using it in all situations where sometimes there's only one side and many times there are many sides, not just two. Right. So, Jay, a lot of this does have to do with the culture that you're in. And, you know, to whatever extent we have that problem, it exists in other forms and other places. The BBC, for for example, I think now has much stricter equal time rules than American broadcasting uh, does so that during Brexit, they had to go out and kind of do what Deborah Tannen just described, uh, which is find some economist who really thought Brexit was a good idea. And, and there were fewer of those than there were uh, uh, economists who, who thought it was a bad idea, but if you watch the BBC, you'd think there was a kind of equivalence. But there are other places where, for example, in Germany, I mean, you kind of can't be a Holocaust denier. There are, are there's there are more limits on free speech. There are limits on what you can say. There are limits on what uh, uh, is considered wrong and inflammatory speech. So, I, I, I suppose every culture has its own idea about what a good and useful argument is. Yes, I think Professor Tannen makes a superb argument. I've read her book and I think it's excellent. Uh, um, what I would say uh, beyond that though is that the problem if you're talking about false equivalence in, jur in journalism is that journalism stopped being so journalistic when it became – when it got under attack um, and people started losing trust in it. And what journalists did instinctively was to try to enhance their brand or their their ethos to make themselves more trustworthy. And that's where they started, you know, putting both sides of every issue. And, you know, I would also agree with Professor Tannen that there was less reporting going on and a whole lot of lazy debate going on with two sides arguing against each other instead of finding out what the situation is. But this is an entirely rhetorical thing here. I don't know that it has to do with um, a more argumentative culture so much as lazy journalism. Well, Deborah Tannen, some of it also has to do with another of your favorite topics, listening. Uh, and, and it seems to me, I, I am now going to hold myself out as a, a, a moral exemplar in this regard, which is not an argument that I usually make on this show. But I really enjoy a, a, um, a beautifully worded, well thought out argument that's against my own closely hold set of beliefs. I mean, I probably enjoy it more about fairly trivial topics. You know, I mean, if, if a critic can successfully disparage some artistic product that I've really enjoyed, you know, and, and he does it eloquently, I mean, I, I find that kind of thrilling and interesting and fun, and it gets me to question my my own suppositions. And, and a writer like Christopher Hitchens, you know, such a beautiful, brilliant writer, I didn't really agree with him about a lot of things. But it was really fun to read what he said and to at least consider the things that he was saying and the possibilities that they were right. And I don't sense that that's 
a mindset to which most people are disposed. And I would even add, it seems to be even more hardened off on social media. I, I don't know, Professor Tannen, what do you make of that? I would not disagree with you at all. Um, what's interesting here to me is cultural differences in the value placed on argument as opposed to, you might say, harmony. Uh, so many have pointed out that Western culture in general tends to value opposition and argument where Eastern cultures put place more value on harmony. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't argue and they don't argue and we do. It's the, the like you actually said this, it's the linguistic formats that you tend to use. Um, there are certainly many cultures that put a high value on the what you're just talking about. Um, taking dynamic opposition, ex explaining it well, even getting heated. Um, uh, there's an interesting example. Uh, my own book, not the, the Argument Culture, another book that I wrote, compared New York conversational style with California conversational style. And enjoying dynamic opposition is an example of what I call high involvement or New York conversational style. Uh, well, I have an example of a woman raised in New York uh, who lived for a time in Israel and lived for a time in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, she was considered so aggressive that she was almost a monster in her words. And in Israel, she was considered so self-effacing that people complained, we don't know where you stand. Mm -hmm. um, uh, some of our students at Georgetown University where I teach have the experience of going to Germany and almost immediately, their German counterparts, students, will try to engage them in a dynamic argument about religion, about politics, and they they recoil. You don't talk about that with people you don't know. And what's fascinating to me, whenever there are conversational style differences, we draw conclusions about the other person, about their abilities or their intentions toward us. So the Americans came away with the impression that their German counterparts were rude and aggressive, and the Germans came away with the impression that the Americans were uninformed, uncommitted. Um, and it, so it really was this different value, cultural value, uh, placed on dynamic opposition, dynamic argument as, as a verbal um, form of entertainment. Right. Uh, and, and I can't help pointing out here, Walter Ong, who is the person I get the term agonism from, um, has a whole book show, pointing out that using dynamic opposition as a way of accomplishing things that are not literally fights is more common among men than, than among women uh, um, in various cultures of the world, although, again, it varies very much culture by culture. But you think of, um, I have, again, many examples from my own students. They may show their affection for each other. The guys might play fighting where the girls are, they will fight, but not not as a way of having fun. I, I want to go back to Jay on that, that for a second, because I know it's in his writing, but Deborah Tannen, while you have the floor, um, I, it does seem as though if we were to look at some of those cultural differences, even the difference between New York and California, well, California is closer to the East, quote-unquote. Quote uh, it is probably more influenced by uh, Eastern philosophy, Eastern religion. And it seems to me that that systems where there are 
essentially is a zero-sum overlay, where if you're right and I'm wrong, I'm annihilated. Uh, our argument is going to be regarded as, first of all, more necessarily aggressive and more necessarily threatening, whereas a culture that includes Taoism, Buddhism, uh, you know, uh, cult, uh, philosophies where there's a, a notion of, of non-attachment or the possibility that two things might be true at the same time, uh, it, it, argument is probably going to be a little bit more contemplative and less threatening. Is that the kind of cultural difference you're talking about? Deborah Tannen? Uh, yeah, I discussed, yeah, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I discussed in the book too. Uh, I think it's it's related to the Western Westerners being more inclined to think in terms of binaries and dualities. So if you think of uh, our, our idea of male-female is, is quite binary. If you think of yin and yang, the yin kind of flows a bit into the yang and each one has a little circle of the other within it. So it's, it's, it's a less dualistic approach. Um, Jay, uh, as Deborah's talking about that n notion of, of, say, how Germans would perceive this, you write the, that in Europe, arguing in, in street side cafes, you know, that's a bonding experience, right? That's, that's the way you become friends with somebody. Exactly. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> I had a job where I had clients in Italy who did just the kind of bonding thing that Professor Tan is talking about. I was horrified. The first time this happened to me was in a very small restaurant where everybody was kind of smiling and nodding at me. And I thought that everyone was just making fun of me. And instead, they were welcoming me to the fold. Yeah, so the cultural differences are definitely there. I think, though, when when we talk about argument, it, it is true that the very word debate is related to the same root word as um, battle. So it's clear that the ancients, men for the most part, um, came up with these devices in the first place as an oppositional approach. Increasingly, what I'm finding, though, among the most persuasive people, and, and this includes um, litigation trial attorneys who I um, teach workshops to, um, you will find that more and more people try to argue agreeably. That's a term I use, which is, you know, almost using the improvisational technique of yes and, where you don't push back directly against a point. You simply add to the conversation and gradually steer it around to your point of view. I think that's something we're beginning to see a change in our culture that is hidden in part by what's happening in our politics. All right. Speak, that's a perfect segue into a break. And coming out of that break, we will talk about what's happening to our politics with Deborah Tannen and Jay Heinrichs. Uh, stay with us for more conversations about arguments, or maybe it's the reverse. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea with big help from Joe Koss, Tucker Ives, Katie Tolarski, Heather Brandon, and special thanks to our interpreters Mary Sue Owens and Sarah D'Agostino from Source Interpreting of West Hartford. Lydia Brown and Sir Ray Hardman appeared in the intro. The part of Bill Curry was played by James Baldwin. And now, back to Colin. Why do you argue? <laughs> the two of you, I, I hate to see it. We enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs>
Let me ask you a question. Wait, let me ask you a question first. All right. Is John Kerry, <laughs> is John Kerry really the best? I mean, I think, you know, John Kerry's done is a terrible best? job. Like, is he the no, no, best? I thought the, Lincoln was good. Is he the best <laughs> the Democrats can do? I think oftentimes the person that knows they can't win is allowed to speak the most freely. And, uh, uh, because otherwise shows with titles such as Crossfire, Crossfire, or Hardball, or I'm gonna kick your ass, or uh, <laughs> we'll 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 jump on it. We're here to love you, not confront well, you. No, no, no. But but what well, I'm saying is is this. Why Which can't this book, why can't we just talk? Book. Please, I beg of you guys. We've got commercials. Please, next. Please stop. In the rapid fire. Please. All right, that's John Stewart appearing on CNN's Crossfire uh, in 2004 with Paul Gala and uh, Tucker Carlson. Uh, he is asking them basically to stop arguing in the way that they argue. Uh, our guest today, R.J. Heinrichs, uh, his book, Thank You for Arguing, What Aristotle, Lincoln, and Homer Simpson Can Teach Us About the Art of Persuasion. Deborah Tannen is the author of many books, including The Argument Culture, Stopping America's War of Words, her latest, You're the Only One I Can Tell. Deborah Tannen, I want to begin with you. You write about, you write about this show, Crossfire. You write about this format. Um, explain what your thoughts and feelings are about it. Yes, uh, I, I argue that there are, uh, and I do say I argue in the sense of I make an argument, um, that the format of uh, turning things into a fight has its place, it can be fun to watch for some people, not everybody. Those who don't enjoy seeing people fight will turn it off and not get any information. Um, and, and people tend to suppress anything that doesn't support their point of view, uh, pick and choose what details they're gonna bring up, what evidence they're gonna bring up. It's not always the path to truth and there is also a back and forth between politics and the tendency of journalists to enjoy, to thinking that people enjoy a fight. Um, I make the point, if there's a fight outside your window, you run to that window to see what's going on. But if there's a fight outside your window every night, then you close the window and try to block it out. And many people have come to approach current events in that way. They don't want to watch television because they're fed up with uh, listening to fights. Uh, and then people are getting less of the information that they need. And there's an interesting and, and troubling pattern by which politicians know that if they call a press conference to talk about a great policy initiative they have in mind, it probably won't be covered. But if they get out there and insult their opponent in extreme ways, that will be covered. And so it's almost a kind of uh, operant conditioning to encourage this kind of shouting and, and um, yelling at each other. And, um, and I believe it has a corrosive effect on the human spirit. People are getting more oppositional in their private lives as well. I have lots of examples in the book uh, where you know, neighbors get angry about something and, and they don't just give, give you a note saying, please watch this, but they excoriate you, insult you. Journalists tell me that they always got complaints from readers or from listeners, but now the, they're more belligerent, they're more uh, vitriolic. And so it's this level of rancor getting ratcheted up that, that I worry about. 
Um, obviously, social media is a great exacerbator of that. But Jay Heinrichs, so first of all, I think we can agree that these shows, for the most part, don't really showcase the kind of rhetorical argument that you and I were talking about earlier in the show. In other words, I don't think anybody comes away from one of these shows saying, wow, I didn't really know what I thought about that, but Paul Begala was so much more persuasive than Tucker Carlson. Uh, now I know what I think about that. Uh, it isn't really about that. It's about exhibiting a kind of uh, – well, it's about watching a fight as Deborah Tannen would say. But you know, I think there is also a happy medium that we can look for, right? We don't want to be in information silos where we only hear the thing that we already agree with. We maybe don't want to watch a dogfight. But, but isn't argument useful somewhere in the middle? Well, I don't know if I would say if there's somewhere in the middle. I'm, we're, I think we're talking about two extremes. One is deliberative argument as a way not just to learn something but to figure out how to make choices in common, which is how Aristotle defined it. Uh, on the other hand, you have argument as fighting or uh, entertain, you know, fighting as entertainment. And those are two very different things there. The, the hard part is if you're a politician and you are going to give a press conference about um, some policy initiative, you'd better be interesting and that's really hard to do. And as somebody who writes for a living myself, I can tell you it's very hard to build you know, creative tension in any kind of policy story. You, you have to build in suspense or character or – you know, have people fighting one another. And I think that's the laziest approach. I'd blame journalism again for that. Um, well, actually, I'm going to play a clip here, which I think is very unrepresentative of one of its participants. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about that and, and how journalism maybe can at times do much better. But here, of course, is the famous showdown uh, between – in the 1968 showdown between Buckley and Vidal. People in the United States uh, happen to believe that the United States policy is wrong in Vietnam and the Viet Cong are correct in wanting to organize their country in their own way politically. This happens to be pretty much the opinion of Western Europe and many other parts of the world. If it is a novelty in Chicago, that is too bad. But I assume that the point of the American democracy is you can express any point of view you want. Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And Some people were pro-Nazi, and the answer is that they were, they were well-treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As, I know you don't as care. As far as I'm you concerned, the only pro-crypto-Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. I, Failing that, I would only let's say that we names. can't have now listen, you the right of the Stop calling me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling names. I'll you in your goddamn face, and you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's go. Let the author Myron Breckenridge go back to his pornography and stop making any illusions of naturalism to somebody you who was to... infantry in the last war. You were not an infantry, naturalism. as a matter of I fact. Was you didn't fight in the middle of You were not. Now you're distorting your own military yeah. record. All right. That's how it can all go off the rails. That's Howard K. Smith, by the way, trying to referee that situation. But, you know, it really was not typical of William F. Buckley. And he supposedly, according to the documentary about this, was troubled for the rest of his life by the fact that that, that moment happened. Deborah Tannen, he was much more famous mostly for a show called Firing Line where, you know, people from different sides really would speak in, in persuasive and eloquent ways. There was sort of room for it. There was respect for, uh, for adversarial opinions. It's actually worth noting that at that moment, in that even in that vicious argument, uh, Buckley, the conservative, is really standing up for the policies of Richard Daly and Lyndon Johnson, but it's a, it's a separate issue. I mean, journalism can do this, and it can be watchable and interesting. So if journalism isn't doing it, Deborah, why is that? I agree that it, it's not a binary, and maybe I'll 
kind of step away from the Western thinking of things in binary. Yeah, the extremes, and, and as just said, we were talking in extremes. On the one hand is what we just heard, screaming over each other. You really can't get anything because you can't even hear the actual words that they're saying. And on the other side, a very well thought out debate in which people raise important points, respond to the other person's points. Um, the, the shortage of time, I think, is a very significant thing here. We hear about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I think the format there was each one had uh, an hour to lay out their ideas, and the next had a half hour to respond, and another half hour to respond to that. That would be unthinkable now. Uh, and everything has to happen more quickly. And producers don't have that much time, and so they getting somebody from the other side, let them fight it out, is an easy way to plan your show, and then you're back on to the next show. But, but I agree that there are all kinds of things in between. Uh, but I think the concept we want to keep in mind, in my view, is this is this a, an argument where you really have something that has to be settled? And if so, could there be another way of doing it? I wouldn't outlaw that kind of argument. I wouldn't try to do away with it altogether. I would simply try to add other ways of uh, exploring ideas. So the cultural contrast comes to mind again. A student in my class from Japan wrote a paper where she looked at information shows in Japan, and at least at the time that she wrote the paper, she said they never had two spokespeople. They would have one, or they would have three or more. And that was a way that either reflected the fact that they didn't think in terms of a fight between two sides, or perhaps that was a way of avoiding a fight developing between two sides. Um, we're almost at it. We have like a minute left, and uh, you've just opened up this fabulous can of worms. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Jay Heinrichs, bearing in mind, we really have like a minute left here. But I mean, the reality is American audiences don't want to watch Donald Trump speak alone or Hillary Clinton speak alone. They want to watch. I don't know whether it's a debate or an argument or whatever it is, and certainly has much tighter time constraints than what Deborah just described. But people want to watch that, right? Well, I think it's because we Americans are largely uneducated in the art of rhetoric. And this is my big cause is to teach more rhetoric in high schools where high school students are now through the AP English language courses are learning rhetorical principles. I think learning, you know, the art of wit, which, you know, I, I'm sorry you had to have Buckley at his absolute worst, <laughs> though you yourself said that he was usually much better. When we appreciate wit and understand the tools of rhetoric, I think we will appreciate and want to watch more the kind of argument that can lead to solutions. Right. Uh, there just has to be an opportunity for us to do that. And I hope that there will be. Meanwhile, I, I, I hope that this show was a nice example of something like that. Anyway, thanks very much to Jay Heinrichs, uh, his book. Thank you for arguing what Aristotle Lincoln and Homer Simpson can teach us about the art of persuasion. Deborah Tannen uh, is the author of many books, including The Argument Culture. Stopping America's War of Words. Her latest is You're the Only One I Can Tell. So sad, baby, you can't argue. No, baby, 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 you can't argue. Oh, wow, Josh, do you see that spider web? Yeah, something's written in it. You're a jerk. Uh, looks like Charlotte and Wilbur are arguing again.